This is The Lack with Helen Rollins, Benjamin Studebaker, and Nina Power. Today, we're doing the 1992 British film, Peter's Friends. I'm going to start us off. Peter's Friends came out the year I was born. It stars many of the most famous British baby boomers, Stephen Fry, Hugh Laurie, Emma Thompson, and Kenneth Branagh, who also directs. It's a lovely little film with a pleasant runtime of under two hours. At first blush, all the characters are a bit cringe. You see, this is a group of friends. They all went to Cambridge. They were all in a theater troupe. We see their cringy theater performance in the 80s. There's a delightful montage of the 80s and early 90s, and then we find them freshly arrived at the Fry character's mansion. His name is Peter, and he has invited them all over for a New Year's reunion. And when we meet them, they all come off rather badly. But over the course of the film, each of the characters is humanized. By the film's end, I think we like all of them. To start, there's Sarah, played by Alfonsia Emanuel. At the start of the film, we think Sarah is a bit of a sex maniac, but she's gradually revealed to be a bit of a hopeless romantic. She constantly hops from man to man, not because she's an infomaniac, but because she's a playful person who loves fantasy. Because she doesn't know this about herself, she keeps getting hurt, and she keeps hurting others. The man she brings along, Brian, is played by Tony Slattery. He initially comes off as a bit of a vulgarian. He makes lots of inappropriate remarks, tells lame jokes, and to top it all off, he's cheating on his wife and child. When he works up the courage to leave his wife for Sarah, everything gets too real for her, and she recoils from him. Isolated both from his old family and from Sarah, Brian becomes a pitiable figure. He's not very bright. Sarah took advantage of him, albeit not maliciously. He leaves to return to his wife midway through the film. We've also got Brannig's character, Andrew. Andrew is rather judgmental. He makes biting comments, often at his wife's expense. This papers over his own deepening unhappiness. You see, Andrew's wife is Carol, played by Rita Rudner. Carol is an American sitcom actress. Andrew doesn't like the show Carol is on, and he doesn't like life in L.A., so he picks on her. Initially, Carol seems rather mockable. She's a bit vain, and she's a bit of a health nut, but we eventually find out she's got a heart. You see, Emma Thompson's character, Maggie, has unrequited feelings for the Fry character. When Maggie makes advances, Peter rebuffs her, telling her that he's not in the vagina business. <laughs> Dejected, Maggie retreats to the kitchen to drink away her sorrows, but there she finds Carol, the actress. Carol was having something of a midnight snack. It turns out Carol is a recovering bulimic. The two women help each other feel better. Carol gives Maggie a makeover, and while the makeover doesn't produce a romance with Peter, it does help Maggie get out of her sexual slump. She seduces Paul, the housekeeper's son. Things don't go as well for Carol. She finds that Sarah tries to get over Brian by making advances on Andrew. I know this is a lot of names. Before long, she's off on a flight back to the United States. Andrew spends much of the rest of the film drinking and being rude to people. He directs some of his ire at Hugh Laurie's character, Roger, and his wife, Mary, played by Imelda Staunton. Roger and Mary are married. They had twins, but lost one to sudden infant death syndrome. Mary is a bit paranoid about leaving the living twin alone with a babysitter and is constantly on the phone checking in. Roger is frustrated with Mary's paranoia. Over the course of the visit, they slowly talk things through, and by the end of the reunion, their marriage is reinvigorated. But that doesn't stop a drunk Andrew from continually having a go at them, as well as anyone else he lays eyes on for even a moment. 
Just as everyone is growing truly sick of Andrew, Peter informs the group that he's gathered them together because he has contracted HIV. Even Andrew, in all his drunkenness, apologizes profusely for his behavior and puts himself at Peter's service. In this act, Andrew is redeemed. For old time's sake, the group performs another rendition of their terrible theater troupe song. But this time, the cringiness feels self-aware and tongue-in-cheek. This is a film about judging. Everyone, especially Andrew, starts the film off making all those horrible comparisons we associate with young married couples. They are all trying to decide who has the better marriage, who has made the better life choices, who is the most miserable. Over the course of the weekend, they are all humiliated so many times in so many ways that these comparisons seem silly. It becomes clear that these people are doing their best to cope with life's challenges. Even though many of them are handling things very badly, they are still trying to find their way. They judge each other because they all know they could be doing better. And when Peter finally reveals his HIV, he puts all their problems in perspective. This world we're living in, it's a cruel place. People get HIV, people lose children to SIDS, marriages break apart, people slip back into alcoholism. So often, our moral attitudes become ways of reassuring ourselves that despite our faults, we're not as bad as the next person. Perhaps the most touching relationship in the film is the one between Peter and the housekeeper, Vera, played by Philida Law. Vera is an older person, and Peter is bisexual, and it's the 90s. Peter believes Vera doesn't approve of his lifestyle, so he hides his HIV from her. When he finally reveals it, he discovers that Vera still cares deeply about him. There's a beautiful moment where this very posh Stephen Fry character and his very working-class housekeeper embrace, cutting tension that's been with us throughout the film. It's a human moment between people whose lifestyles couldn't be more different. At a time when cultural conflict is increasingly stoked by both progressives and conservatives to paper over the possibility of real human connections between people with genuinely different values, it was a nice thing to see. Real diversity is deep and substantive. Too often, human relationships are just friendships of political convenience. But in this film, we see bonds that ultimately do not depend on value alignment. These people are able to work through their differences, get past judgment, and recognize each other's intrinsic value. They have forged real friendships despite all the burdens of modern life that pit us against each other. Of course, it was the 90s, so it was easier back then. We don't have to be rivals, competitors, or participants in careerist networks. We can just be friends. And we can go on being friends, even when we don't see eye to eye about everything. When our friends say something we don't agree with, we don't have to look at them suspiciously, judge them, or imply that they might be fascist. We can just talk. Isn't that nice? This was a nice film, and I'm glad Nina picked it. But now, let's find out what Helen thinks. Okay, well, first of all, I have to say that... um, I've listened back to some of our episodes in the past, and this this ties into a point that I'm going to make, which is about the other news... You, you greater than you can ever be aware of yourself. And it's only in relation to the other, in playing out yourself in relation to the other that you come to know yourself. And I'm very bad at judging when to shut up in conversation. It's like a, it's like an issue that I have. So I, and sometimes I go on and on and on, and I think I should save some of this stuff for later conversation. But um, maybe it's the teacher in me. I always want to like make sure that I've got the point across really well and like go through it a few times. So I'm going to try to just say this in like five minutes, but I won't cover everything. And when I get to five minutes, I'll just shut up and then, you know. So, um, and this relates not to what Benjamin was saying, obviously. You know, in terms of this idea of rivalry of enemies, we live in a, in a very solipsistic age. We've talked about this so many times. 
um, to the extent where, you know, we, we're, we're living in this, this capitalist mode where as value is harder and harder and harder to generate, we have to erect more and more and more borders, um, which limit an access to an imagined something so that they, there can be value, value engendered. And this, these limitations occur in so many different ways. And it's, it's got to the stage where every other is a possible enemy or an enemy, um, a potential enemy. Um, and we are in this, it's, it's entered us into, and obviously there are material uh, reasons why this has happened in terms of the development of the contingent development of tech and, and coronavirus and stuff. But we're in this very, very solipsistic age. And um, the uh, algorithmic um, control of our lives, because so much of our lives play out on online, does not help this because algorithms can never be dialectical. They cannot incorporate the um, contradictory nature of our reality within them. And we need, a, you know, we need minds to be able to interact with these algorithms in order to maybe um, ensure that we do bring back a bit of contradiction into ourselves related to, to tech. But that's maybe another question. But the thing that I think is really interesting about this film is that it is about something terrible and sad and traumatic that is only revealed in the last moments of the film. But this lands in a way that is more moving then it would have landed if the whole film was about this one character who has AIDS and woe is him, even though it was very, very difficult for people who had AIDS at that time. I mean, it still is, but obviously it was, you know, a terrible, terrible situation, um, an illness that was blamed on the people who had the illness and, and there were these sort of horrible moralistic and, and, and terrible, terrible um, questions of fear related to this. And this was to do, of course, with purity dynamics related to sex which create always a scapegoated other because there is no purity in anything, but there is especially no purity in sex. So, um, and, and obviously it's interesting how um, movements to bear in mind the lack of purity in sex have become a particularized version of that, which tried to uh, show that there is a purity in impurity in sex and there's going to be always another that doesn't quite get it. But, you know, this is, this is an issue that we've talked about a huge amount. But the point being is that we get to know Peter more through his friends than through himself because Peter exists in, you know, his, his whole persona is, well, not persona, his whole person um, exists through language, which is this nexus of meaning that exists between people. And we, we find that the emotional punch lands stronger precisely because we found out so much about all the people that make up him in relation to him. So it's ultimately more moving. There is, I think there has been some pushback against this in, in culture, but there has been this sort of trauma fetish within culture um, of late. But the trauma fetish, precisely being a fetish, it covers over the reality of actual trauma. It is not really, you know, fully dialectical and doesn't embrace the emancipatory potential of understanding the dynamics of trauma to get us beyond this sort of trauma fetishization, which again, the same thing in terms of um, having these constant enemies and, you know, with a greater, greater, greater um, stretch of capital into every realm of our, our, of our beings and our lives as um, the tendency for the rate of profit declines. You know, we, we have more and more and more of these um, sustained dynamics where we are put into situations where our trauma must not be resolved so that we can constantly be um, attempting to um, overcome this trauma in a utopian way. So it's this fetishization of trauma 
in culture only understands one side of the dialectic of psychoanalysis. So obviously, psychoanalysis has a lot to say about trauma. We can potentially say that, you know, obviously, Freud discovered the unconscious, and we have many descendants of Freud who um, maybe uh, didn't quite get the fully dialectical, fully kind of Hegelian and emancipatory dynamic of psychoanalysis. And we see this so much in all kinds of um, capitalized upon um, dynamics of the personal as political that really don't get the fully dialectical nature of the personal as political. The personal is political only insofar as each person is a dialectical lacking subject. So the political, we are only political insofar as we desire. We desire because we are born too soon. We're not, we're not um, well, there's all the question of neoteny and everything like that, but we um, develop language because we're born too soon because we go through a second birth. That language relates us to others, but that language is a symptom of the fact that we desire and we desire because we lack. So politics is about the confrontation of desire and the management of desire and needs and wants of different people and the confrontation of that and the fact that all of our desires are always difficult. So that's really why the person is political. It's not that I have borders around myself. I am all... Um, Everything that I do is like the, the, the particular is the universal. No, the universal, we arrive at a universal through the particular. And it's not like everything that is meaningful in the entire world is locked down to what I think and I want in this solipsistic age. Politics is about the relationship with other people. And psychoanalysis is ultimately about acknowledging the existence of the other, getting us to fully understand, <laughs> to consciously and unconsciously understand that other people actually exist. We're all traumatized as well. You know, we are only human beings insofar as we are traumatized. I'm just writing this novel at the moment. And the opening line is, uh, I think, if I can remember it, the, apop- the apocalypse isn't coming. It's already happened. We only come into subjectivity insofar as we have been traumatized. If we haven't been traumatized, if we haven't had this huge wrenching of ourselves from the other, from an imagined utopia because it's gone, we will not be human speaking subjects. And the toxic merry-go-round that generally, genuinely creates horrible conditions for people, capitalism, the ideology of promise, continues on. Um, the, the stakes can be lowered on it, but can only be lowered if we recognize that the dynamics in reality that traumatize us are the dynamics that mean we are connected to the other. Um, I was going to talk about, you know, <laughs> you hear this all the time. I've heard so many arguments for solipsism, like genuinely people trying to say, like, you can't prove that other people ex- don't exist or other people exist but you actually can. And I was going to go through like a handful of arguments, but that's a bit boring. <laughs> um, but yeah, basically just the idea that we um, only exist in so far as others recognize us and that the other is lacking as well. And we see in this film, all of these troubled, messy other people in whose eyes um, we can encounter kind of like uh, the gaze of Peter and their relationship to Peter, and it becomes much more meaningful and moving the reality of what he's going through. All right. Nina, it's your turn. All right. Uh, yeah, thanks for those great comments, both of you. Um, I wanted to rewatch this film um, for several reasons. For some reason, it, it just came back to mind um, recently, and I saw this film when it came out, so <laughs> unlike Benjamin, who was born in the year it came out, I, I watched this as uh, I guess I must have been about 12 or 13. Um, and I think at the time, I regarded it as slightly pompous and silly. And there were a lot of these kind of um, 
I don't know, like slightly self-congratulatory sort of big, I don't know, mirror max sort of costume drama-y sort of big actor-y type things going on in this in this era. And I was kind of curious to revisit this film, um, not least also because I'm working on a theory about uh, cinema in the 90s, which and not just cinema, television as well, which is to do with the 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 mixed friendship group. And by mixed, I mean both men and women. I mean more than two people. Um, and of course, they can have relationships with each other, like the couples in this film. There's several pairs within the friendship group. Um, but they're not polyamorous. It's not anything like a commune or, or anything towards that. Um, and because I think this is like the, the model of a certain way of being, which comes after the family. Um, this sort of celebration of the family, um, which you do see in cinema up to this point, but you also see various forms of atomization in the bedsit film, which you get in the 1960s and 70s, usually like a young man renting off of a, a landlady. But in the 90s, you have actually a kind of explosion of um, cinema and television, which is based around this mixed French group friendship, or the mixed friendship group, basically. So, so not only this film, but other ones that came to mind, I'm sure there are others, um, would be This Life, the television series, um, which you, you, you two probably haven't seen, but which was absolutely massive at the time. It was, uh, so, so popular. I used to watch it with my mother. It's, it was, a uh, sort of experimental in that had, it had a shaky camera and it was a bit kind of edgy because it followed the lives of these sort of young professionals who would always get, a bit drunk and, and have sex and do sort of wild and wacky things. But the, the fundamental thing that kept everything together was this model of the friendship um, and particularly the shared house. So like the flat share um, with, let's say, again, more than two people. It has to be, for my theory to work, more than two people. The dark side of this you see in uh, Shallow Grave, which is from 1994. This life is 96. This film is 92. Um uh, Shallow Grave is like a group of flatmates looking for an extra flatmates, but it's Danny Boyle's first film and it's a kind of dark comedy. It's about murder in the end. Um, but again, the model is the, the mixed group friendship that's, that's tied in some ways to property. In this film, Peter is the wealthy uh, in, uh, heir to, to an estate and, and therefore he has enough room to invite all of his friends and he has a housekeeper and he has her son to help look after them uh, and so on. Um, but I think there is a sense in which the friendship, the mixed friendship group is like the last ditch attempt to, to, uh, represent forms of loyalty and bonds, um, that, uh, just before the kind of complete, complete collapse into the individualism that follows. So it's neither the family nor the individual, but it's people who are thrown together through whatever reason. And Peter makes this comment. He, he uses a GK Chesterton quote in the film where he talks about the fact that we're sort of thrown into the world and we encounter other people, right? So these people randomly meet each other at university. Of course, in a way, they're a similar type of person. They're the type of person who went to Cambridge and the type of person who was in a theatre group. And as Benjamin said, you know, these are slightly initially very obnoxious people <laughs> some ways you know and the whole film plays with obnoxiousness and and the humanizing of of people who initially seem kind of um you know maybe a bit irritating um for good reason um but there is a sense in which nevertheless they they are bound together um regardless of 
uh, any of their disagreements, any of their sort of simmering resentments and jealousies and hatreds and past sexual interactions and whatnot um, by a kind of random bond, which is nevertheless extremely real. And of course, Peter's announcement of his um, HIV positive uh, diagnosis. And again, very interesting to think back to this period when there was no cure for HIV and there was no prevention either. Um, and I remember in the 80s very much the fear around HIV. It was astonishing. I mean, every household got this leaflet with this kind of, um, you know, gravestone, this kind of obelisk of death. And, you know, the, the, the adverts and so on on television were extremely frightening, you know, designed to basically prevent people from having unprotected sex at all, the condom adverts everywhere and this kind of thing. And it was a real, presented as a real health uh, crisis and a panic. And as Helen pointed out, it was extremely moralistic. It was um, discussed in the most moralistic terms. Um, so, you you know, that's in the film too, this playing around with, with what it means to be sexually liberated. Um, and I suppose... Yeah, so that's also an interesting thing that I guess maybe just the final point I wanted to make about about the film rewatching it is to think about what has shifted since 1992. It's not that long ago, obviously I remember it. Um what you have in this film are adults in their early 30s, right, who seem massively older than adults in their early 30s do today, partly because they've had 10 years since they've left university, but they've got on with their lives. They're allowed to get on with their lives. They have places to live. Some of them are married. Most of them are married. Some of them have children. A lot of the, all of them have jobs. All of them are kind of professionals. Um, they seem, I would say, significantly older than 30-year-olds or 31-year-olds would do today. Um, and a lot of that is to do with their economic um potential like the the way in which they're allowed to become adults you know so people are allowed to be uh grown up um somehow is still in the 90s um in a way that that's shifted completely as well so so i guess my two points really are this the the binds of the of the french the mixed friendship group you know and, and was this a, in retrospect a last ditch attempt to uh think about um being with others in a way uh before the collapse into a kind of complete competitive individualism as as both of you have mentioned um and what what can we say and what can we resurrect about friendship today you know is there something about this you know the loyalty that we might have to the people that we happen to grow up with the people that we happen to go to university with or that we met at a particular point in our life yeah so I, I think Nina cannot talk about mixed friendship group shows in the 90s without mentioning Friends. <laughs> Nina has to react to Friends, and, and I demand that Nina react to Friends. Shit, I forgot about that one. That's so funny, isn't it? Of so course. Isn't it the, I mean, the, two friend, the two 90s films that you've recommended before, like The Last Supper, obviously, yeah. and also Reality Bites. It's exactly that, the same That's right. Thing. I, I, there yeah. must be something. I'm very, very interested in this. And I've just come up, as I said, this lately with this theory about the, the mixed friendship group in 90s cultural product. But of course, Benjamin, as always, is <laughs> very astute. Um, friends. Well, actually, I, I I was indifferent to Friends. It was, it was extremely popular, obviously. I was on all the time. I think it was in that way that Channel 4, you know, was a bit cool. And it was, maybe it was on six o'clock or seven o'clock I don't know it would seem to be on all the time um I didn't really get into it but you're completely right that it fits with what I'm saying it is yeah it, if you're gonna talk about this you have yeah. to go watch friends 
And we probably have to have an episode on Friends if you're going to do that. No, that, the only I, episode, I don't want to do it either. But this is what you've chosen of, to do. I know the only episode of Friends that I that I really liked was where there was a class war episode where I think it was Phoebe really? and the pretty man one, both of whom are sort of unemployed or oh, barely Joey. employed. Joey, yeah. they they gang <laughs> up together against the other ones who actually have income, and they the other ones forget that the that Phoebe and Joey are poor, and they have a rebellion <laughs> against the other friends. And of course, the whole thing is predicated on this fantasy that that you know twenty somethings or whatever could rent a flat lo- overlooking Central Park that's massive. But you they know. could have rent. They had rent control, didn't they? Right. The Isn't that part of the thing? <laughs> I, mean, I, don't, I don't know how much they go into how that's possible in the show. Yeah. But no, the apartments they have in Friends are completely unrealistic. They were unrealistic yeah. in the 90s that's and right. they're completely absurd I mean, uh, if you the, go watch it now. What's she called? Monica's flat, because she's a caterer, right? Like Monica's flat would be worth, what, like eight grand a month now? Two bedrooms, right. that little balcony thing. <laughs> oh, it's all just completely absurd. Uh, <laughs> But I, obviously, if Nina is going to write about mixed friendship group stuff in, from the 90s, she's going to have to talk about friends. If she doesn't talk about friends every time she presents the book, people or the uh, or the idea in whatever form it may take, uh, people will go, well, what about friends, Nina? And, and then Nina will have to give the same answers over and over again. Thanks, Benjamin. I really appreciate your very useful comment. Um, it's interesting though because obviously there's there's something that's like the most obvious take that you could have as a sort of like slightly Marxist whatever is that it's about posh people right and you know where are the where are the you know the you know the because it's interesting because you know there's a working class person two people in this film and this is a this is a this is not only a wealthy person but this is a very old moneyed person but it's just, in this instant, it's just not interesting. It's not interesting mm-hmm. anymore because obviously this is the 90s. It's a different epoch. And we now have, like, the issue when it comes to Marx, really, it all comes down to illuminating the obfuscation. And it's interesting that none of us said, talked about that at all because all of that stuff, a critique of that kind of class is so out in the open and so known that it's not, it's not the issue at play anymore. The mm-hmm. obfuscation of the thing that covers over surplus value is something else. And I would say that there's something else in relation to this film is the denial of the existence of the other that has happened through ideology as a cope for the changing dynamics in capitalism. And that really, you cannot have an emancipatory politics without understanding that other people exist. <laughs> but also, which, which sounds really obvious, but actually it, it isn't really. But also, when you get over the utopian libidinal investment in the potential of some kind of transcendence beyond the horizon, you do not need your enemies. You can have neighbors who piss you off. Oh, it's interesting that show Neighbors as well has ended. Maybe mm. that's the end of it. That was a big thing in the 90s. Um, neighbors, yeah. But um, yeah, the enemy becomes a neighbor. But also um, that you don't need to erect these identity signifiers that delineate who you are for the market and and um, that bring along built-in um, trauma signifiers that uh, offer up offer to capitalism an uh, like a fake opportunity to pretend to resolve but actually sustain I mean this is the thing with capitalism it pretends to resolve but sustains um, and that question of pretending to resolve but sustaining, I think, is where we need to class uh, to to shift our sort of like 
class analysis gaze, because it is a question of class, that there's always an obfuscation around how one class is fucked by another or by those who are on the other side of surplus value. But it's just interesting that none of us obviously talked about that at all. It's just not interesting. Yeah, I mean, I think my initial reaction from when I was younger would have been like slight yeah. annoyance at the poshness, yeah. like definitely. But probably because I, I think it might have been more justified in the 90s, yeah. right? <laughs> Maybe. Like it probably was justified. You know, because yeah. it, it, in a way you could, of course, from an ideological point of view, you could say this is humanising aristocracy in the yeah. upper class, right? Yeah. Like this is providing cover for, you know, posh people to do what they always do, by, uh, but by making them seem kind of ultimately... Pleasant. I mean, it's a it is a lighthearted comedy with some sort of you know slightly edgy elements, but not really. But it's um, yeah. I mean, but it's but it's interesting. And I I think the other part of the Chesterton quote I just wanted to mention that the Stephen Fry Peter character mentions is is he says, well, you know, actually, what's adventurous is not climbing mountains and um, you know, trekking or doing all these things. It's it's climbing over your neighbor's fence. And, you know, the point about that really to go to your point about neighbours, because I agree, this is the other part of the, the, the mixed group, the mixed friendship group is the neighbour. And the neighbour is a very important p- principle in English and Welsh law. Um, and it's not the same as a kind of universalism, equal rights idea. But in, in tour and other aspects of English law, you have this idea of, of neighbourliness as almost like a kind of implicit principle of how we behave towards one another. And it's in the case law. And it, it's one of these medium-sized ideas, which is why revolutionaries don't really like these sorts of things, because it's not abstract and exciting enough. Um, and Ed, Edwin Burke makes this point. It's like people always want these grand ideas that are basically like um, dynamite, you know, like equality and universalism and fraternity. But something like neighbourliness is much more gentle and much, but much harder in fact, mm. to practice because, you know, living with people that you don't choose to live with or next door to, but still being able to get along with them or even look out for them, which is the principle that's enshrined in law, um, not even a principle. Let's say something like a, I don't know, tendency or a guide, <laughs> a guide because everything is so tentative. Um, but it's a way of being that's actually much harder than imagining some grand revolutionary situation. And then it's like, well, after the revolution, we'll sort out how to behave towards one another. But to actually do it in practice, you know, is tied up, I suppose, with almost like a Christian mindset, you know, the mm-hmm. good neighbour. It's mm-hmm. like, who is the good neighbour? And I, I, I totally... State Farm. What? Like a good neighbour, State Farm is there. Is that the, is that the like... That, uh, there's an American insurance company called State Farm. Right. Uh, like, and their slogan is, like a good neighbor, State uh, Farm is there. Well, this is capitalism can always, anything that, resu- you know, anything that's remotely good, it'll come and turn to poo. Um, but well, what, what do they mean there? What are they trying yes. to get you to feel? You know, when some disaster happens, State Farm will be there to help you, uh, which is what a good neighbor should do. If yeah. the kind of thing, so in the old days, before there it. was insurance, your neighbors would come and help you in that situation. If your house burned down, your neighbors would help you. Well, since you don't have good neighbors anymore, you have to call State Farm. <laughs> well, exactly. they, you know, um, it's declaring its truth right, right in front of our very eyes. <laughs> but it's like Stepping trust in. law is, was founded on the idea when people went off to the Crusades and they asked their mm-hmm. friends who were staying to look at, make sure that their wife and children would be fine because they didn't know if they were going to come back or not. You know, so that so then trust becomes a kind of principle that's enshrined as well. But, but yeah, but yet, 
State Farm, I mean, it does the very thing. It hollows out human relation and wears it as a thin skin suit and sells it back to us as something kind of nice. And, and you, you get the nostalgia. Sort of, but in a real sense, you do need State Farm because you don't have good neighbors. Yeah, anymore. no, 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 exactly, no, but you. exactly, exactly. But it's not, it's not like State Farm's fault per se. It's like the, the whole dynamic right. of the market. But the thing is, um, so the, just about the, the posh people thing for a second, like, um, there are a couple of things that, yeah, like absolutely on one level. And I guess it's like the dialectic of, um, of like analyzing society and culture. So like on the one hand, yes, this does humanize a posh person. Um, and, yeah, these, these are sort of these, these good eggs who went to Cambridge and uh, didn't they all deserve to go to Cambridge? You know, there's no question of like, well, how did they get into Cambridge and, 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 and have they got their jobs because of whatever? But, um, so on the one hand, yeah, that this humanizing question, but on the other, there is this question, this idea that like capital or the ideology of problems o- operates on this more transcendent libidinal level, wh- which is not rational, which says that not on a factual basis, but on some kind of unconscious basis, we can achieve um, some kind of totality, some kind of oneness through uh, an aspiration for more. And this happens, you know, through self-help, through money, through religion, blah, blah, blah. But at the end of the day, you're all going down. And if you can actually fully like understand that, then it, you know, st- stops people from, and this is obviously very idealist, but then can you have a an uh, economic revolution, a philosophical revolution, you know, that you, it stops, if you realize that the money's not going to do anything, like why just have a whole fucking system that destroys everything on behalf of that? Um, and then the other thing is, is at least they had the good sense or the, the, the honesty of not obfuscating their class, mm-hmm. which is one of the main problems I think today, where you get people who, it should be very obvious to saying that everybody's working class, which is obviously not the case. Well, something I, I want to point out on the class point, uh, part of what makes Peter likable is that Peter is, a, is an aristocrat and doesn't do anything. Peter is likable because he does nothing. So he has a bunch of money and he has a bunch of banners and he has a bunch of education, but he doesn't do anything. Really at all. And it's commented on at many points in the film that he doesn't do anything. And a lot of people find this a little bit disrespectable about him, that he doesn't do anything. But it is the thing that I think ultimately makes him likable because every other character in this film has a professional job that is worse than doing nothing. Uh, The Hugh Laurie (laughs) character makes jingles for commercials. Mm -hmm. Uh, You've got uh, an actress who's in a, a sitcom that is just blatantly you know, his her own husband thinks is terrible. <laughs> Nobody in this film has a job that is respectable. You have Peter who does nothing, and then you have a bunch of professional people who have bullshit jobs being paid to service capital in very vulgar and pathetic ways. So none of them have anything to pride themselves on in terms of career. None of them really had the kind of acting career that they imagined, even the ones who are still in the orbit of acting or film are in a completely commercial part of the business. So I think what Peter does with his life is in many ways more respectable than what anyone else does, Mm -hmm. including having sex with everybody. More respectable than what everybody else is doing. (laughs) The the other thing I wanted to say, kind of to return to Nina's point about the mixed friendship group show. So if the 90s are when the mixed friendship group thing comes in, right? 
I'm thinking, when does it go out? Yeah, exactly. So when is the kind of twilight of the mixed friendship group? And the show that comes to mind for that is How I Met Your Mother. How I Met Your Mother is a mixed friendship group show. But by the time you get to How I Met Your Mother, listen to the title. The whole point of How I Met Your Mother is that this man is in this mixed friendship group, but he is alone. He isn't partnered up. He needs to have a partner so that he can be okay. So the whole show is a quest for him to find the partner who will rescue him from only having friends. Right. And not having a partner. Yeah. And the, so the emphasis... The 40-year-old virgin is like this as well. Lots of those films in that remit. In the 2000s. Yeah, in yeah. the 2000s. And Friends goes this way because Friends starts in the 90s but ends in the 2000s. Mm. And at the beginning of Friends, nobody's partnered up. And by the end of Friends, everyone must be. Mm. because Mm -hmm. the friendship group is, of course, not enough. So if you run these shows for long enough, eventually the people writing the shows, even though Friends begins with the whole pay-on to friendship, you know, so no one told you life was going to be this way, your job's a joke, you're broke, your love life's (laughs) D-O-A. It's like you're always stuck in second gear when it hasn't been your day, your week, your month, or even your year. I'll be there for you, Yeah. right? So in the beginning, it's a pan to what friends can do. But by the end, everybody's been partnered up. Every, everybody's love life is not at all DOA because the friendship group is not sufficient. Mm. It's interesting because you... And so the focus goes to romance. Yeah, because you have these shows that are uh, friendship and romance. So what's it, Sex and the City, which is, you know, a smaller group. It's not this but extended. It's, but it's single sex great. So, so my, I'm yeah, going yeah, to exactly. oppose my, yeah. So my opposition is obviously to the, not uh, to those films that have uh, single sex, you know, like Mean Girls would be one. Heather's mm-hmm. would be another. The, those are often about intra uh, sex competition between women. There are those like bro type films, like where they the go hangover. to Las Vegas and stuff. Yeah. Th- those yeah. sorts of films. So, so yeah. So, so those are on the, they're in my scheme, but they're, but they're not. Yes. Yeah, they're, on they're the, not. They're, not, they're part of the Venn diagram, but not. Yes. The whole, not and the reason I point to How I Met Your Mother is when you start that film, you do have one set of people who are partnered up. And then you have a guy who is single and he meets a woman and then they have another single friend. So it's in between a group of mm. single people and the partnered up thing. So there and a lot of the show occurs in a in a uh, coffee shop. Yeah. So similar to Friends, borrowing lots of stuff from Friends, but starting I, to drift. I've never the really watched thing. it, but what's that silly show with these sort of nerdy scientists? Are they a mixed friendship group? Big or Bang not? Theory. Yeah. Big Bang Theory. Everybody's single at the beginning, uh, and then everybody's partnered up. Are but they the mostly thing is, men, though? Are they mostly men, or is they mixed? Are they equal numbers? So it, in the beginning of that show, it's mm. two nerdy guys, and they meet a woman. Mm. who one of the nerdy guys is into and wants to pursue. That's like uh, the Graham Linehan, the IT crowd as well. Yeah, I'd say you're really starting with a group of guys in that show and then women gradually Mm -hmm. come into the show and are introduced to rescue the men. Have you guys seen um, Girls, the Lena Dunham show? Oh, yeah, I've seen like the first three episodes, but that's more single sex, isn't it? It's a single sex thing and obviously it's, it's like a... Heir to Sex and the City. Mm-hmm. It is interesting that in in um, in the show, it ends up with uh, Lena Dunham's character being a single mother. Right. So <laughs> it's like the ultimately kind of. I mean, it's interesting. There's there's um, interesting questions of being okayness and giving up on certain dreams and all this kind of stuff. But it is interesting that it um, 
it ends with, yeah, a woman on her own living in upstate New York, you know, mm-hmm. having had uh, a child from a white night, one night stand. So it's going from, yeah, like all these people and this friendship group to nothing. Mm. Well, I, I want to say a little bit more about Big Bang Theory because that show was the last uh, American sitcom to have really, really ginormous network TV ratings. Mm-hmm. And that, I think, is the show which really inaugurates this era of you can be completely socially maladapted and yet somehow still the relationship will work. Mm-hmm. So you have characters in that show, including Sheldon, who is really, really socially maladapted, who nonetheless, every character in that show, no matter how bad they are at dealing with other people, must be saved in the end by a woman <laughs> uh, and is eventually saved by a woman, uh, regardless of the of the foibles or the depth of the foibles. Mm-hmm. And I think we've we and that show is very much kind of often credited or associated with the mainstreaming of dork culture. Mm-hmm. And I say dork culture because I, I want to emphasize that there is a socially uh, incapable aspect to nerd culture is not just mm-hmm. you're into nerdy things or you're smart or you're good with computers. It's also you lack social skills because you've lived behind a computer. That is an important and necessary part of it. You know, the dorkishness of it is is an important part of it. And the mainstreaming of being a dork, the idea that being a dork is okay, you can be a dork and you can still end up getting the relationship, Mm -hmm. that is the fantasy of Big Bang Theory that made it so enormously popular. And then in the years following Big Bang Theory, there has been an enormous spread of dorkishness throughout (laughs) American society. (laughs) Everybody is a dork now. The most popular films are Marvel films. Everybody, this everybody is, very, is someone who in the eighties or nineties would yeah, have been regarded as a weird. This is very post, you know, goes to a convention. Post-masculinity. Kind of this is yeah, like a is. post-masculine culture. But, have but, you guys? You know, everybody going, women going to these yeah. conventions as well. Yeah, women yeah. doing the cosplaying and uh, all of it. Also, like, oh. can I just say, like, the women's cosplay is always like super sexy, and the guys isn't. But anyway, so it's like the women are like high. Like, so this it's funny. It's not like you know. Uh, patriarchal alpha male culture is like objectifying more but obviously there's a thing if you can objectify yourself I have no problems with people objectifying themselves but it's just interesting that there isn't this, it's not like a this and that have you guys you guys don't have Instagram but there's this guy on it called Francis Bourgeois that is this British guy who um, films himself with this weird sort of GoPro having basically like orgasms at trains <laughs> he's like a train spotter and basically it, I mean it's really really played up so it's funny because um some people I know are like, this is obviously a fake. This is obviously like an Alan Partridge character and we're all <laughs> in on the joke. But then half of people are like, no, 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 this is totally real. This is totally real. And there was a, um, so whether or not he's playing a character, mm. people like him because he's a dork and he's wearing his heart on a sleeve and all of his weird fascinations are on a sleeve and there's nothing wrong with it. And it's interesting because it's like, I always find w- when you wonder what something is ideologically representing you listen to the heartwarming feeling it generates and the heartwarming feeling it generates is like look he's just himself he's you know being real he's pursuing what he really wants he's true to himself that's what it sort of feels like and also you get the you get that also feeling of like i'm so unjudgmental because i like him i'm good so i think it operates on a kind of like we're all so ethical now because we don't judge, but we, do, we mm. judge by not judging. You know, we judge because 
which is the what's the most ethical thing to like instead of being like oh I like it because it's good you like it because it's like I have the right you know Christian love feeling um but also this idea of um this aspiration this redoubling of an aspiration on yourself to be yourself as if you are yourself you know <laughs> like as, in, as if there's something to be or something to define within yourself which I think is also like just as and potentially even more um repressive than having like a canonical thing that people aspire to and try to be because like I, like it, it's it's you have to unearth your own truth and then you're not quite you know the ethical person or you're a fake if you don't but like what is real you know I don't know but it is it's interesting <laughs> that you have this double thing of like is he real or is he not and there's a loads of videos from his past and posts and stuff where he was like a conventional kind of cool kid at school and then he sort of came on and said that wasn't the real me but it's funny like um Peter's just so so can he can't believe that people would believe he's real and then other people I know, like my older sister, is like, no, he's totally real. He's totally real. <laughs> it's interesting. You know what you're making me think of? What? Chris Chan. I do know what that is. Christian Weston Chandler. You guys not heard about the most documented I, man on the internet? He's some no. sort of, didn't he get like ultimately arrested for incest or something? Absolutely yes. appalling. Yes, ultimately. Can I just make a point about judgment? We should judge. Some things are better than others. Some ways of living are better than others. <laughs> Some people are better than others. This is reality. <laughs> um, I think that like this point about, you know, judging, not judging as a form of judgment is exactly right. Like the idea that being the most non-judgmental person is somehow to be the most moral person in our stupid culture. No, exactly. Um, but this is this is absolutely idiotic um, and excuses all manner of um, terrible things. If you think about it, just a quick example, like there's an art college near where I live that for a long time had a banner outside that said discrimination is never OK. But this is a very funny thing to say. An discriminate art college. to pick people um, to college. <laughs> if if part of what you're trying to do is inculcate aesthetic judgment and the idea of the critic, then of course we have to be able to discriminate. We have to be able to say not only that something is not something else, but to be able to say that one thing is better than another thing, and here's why. But this so is, this a, this is like, the question. <laughs> yeah. it's, 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 it's like what Benjamin always says in terms of roles and like how neoliberalism tr uh, ties value to um or you know to transcendent value and therefore coin to something that's like good at one thing versus not and or good at you know and the thing is there's no there's no problem with something being aesthetically better or um factually better or not it's the way in which we ascribe value related to it that is oppressive but this is this is the thing though like when it comes to capitalism which all of this stuff pretends to critique but actually all it does is acts as a veil to sustain the question is value. It's not like, you know, it's, it's how we assign value and how we obfuscate where, where we extract value and where we assign value. And so all of this stuff is just a way to just make everybody fucking confused and anxious, which then gets us to you know, constantly, you get everybody to be highly trained at university. We never had a more educated population. Then suddenly you shift the values and like, ha ha, now you've got to start from square one. You thought you knew everything. Now you don't. Like it's bollocks. But what about Chris Chan, Benjamin? Well, just on, on uh, what was just being said about uh, judging, I, I think that part of the way that judging has been marginalized to a significant degree is a conflation of judging with blaming. Mm -hmm. Judging, just differentiating between 
stuff that is good and stuff that is bad or stuff that is symptomatic of a society that is not functioning well and stuff that is indicative of a society that is functioning well. Different from blaming particular yeah, people and totally. saying that they're the cause, they're the reason, they're the enemy, they're the person who uh, is, is, is the cause of things. And I think in our heavily individualistic mm-hmm. society, judging is now totally associated with blaming. And so anyone who judges is accused of blaming because it's assumed that those things are the same and that there's no version of judging, which is different from blaming. And yet accusing is fine. (laughs) Accusing and snitching is encouraged. Yeah, because of course, though, it's like (laughs) in this highly individualist thing, it's the same logic whereby people can't think systematically. Everybody is only a symptom of their own choice. So if they've done something wrong and you can accuse them of like being being the cause of everything bad, but then if you are blaming them, they haven't done it. I, yeah, I do. Right, because the individual yeah. is the unhypothetical first principle. The individual yeah. is where everything comes from. Everything emanates from the individual like the one. You know, the individual is the one, the many is the one, and it's all inverted. So uh, you know, we have a- anti-Platonism now. So <laughs> and, and <laughs> the, the point about uh, Chris Chan. So... Chris Chan. Yeah, I, you know, a friend of mine kind of told me about Chris Chan, and I've read up a little bit because it's very easy to read up on Chris Chan because Chris Chan is the most documented person on the internet. Chris Chan, uh, born in the early 80s, uh, but to older parents who were interested in, you know, his uh, father was interested in technology and the internet, but was still very old. So not savvy, not culturally savvy on the internet, not aware of what was going mm-hmm. on in the internet, but interested in it conceptually. So, Chris Chan ends up with internet access and a computer in his room and a camera to shoot videos on and so on at a much earlier stage than most people. But Chris Chan is also substantially autistic. Right. So because of this, he uh, makes a lot of internet mistakes, a lot of social mistakes, and puts things out on the internet that are embarrassing, attracts a group of trolls who then uh, continually harass him. And then because he's autistic and he has face blindness, he's very gullible, he's very easy to fool, easy to trick, and he can be tricked and fooled in the same ways over and over again. He also, because of his lack of social skills, he can't get a girlfriend, so the easy way to influence him is to pretend to be a woman who's interested in him, uh, and then he'll do anything to try to get something to happen with, with a woman who feigns interest in him over the internet. And no matter how many times these people use this to, to hurt the guy, he continues to fall for it over and over again. And gradually over time, his, uh, he kind of loses touch with reality. Uh, for one, he becomes a trans woman. Uh, he becomes a she. Uh, for two, uh, there, there's a, a, he, he starts affirming something called the dimensional merge, the idea that the comic books he draws uh, and reality are going to come together and everything that he's ever drawn will be, will be real. Uh, and that this will happen in a kind of rapture moment and that he is the, the, a Jesus figure who is kind of bearing all of this. And it's around this time that he's persuaded to have sex with his mother. And, and then he was jailed recently for, for incest on, on the grounds of that. Yeah. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a terrible story. This it's is, a terrible story. Tragic. The thing is, it's, it's so heavily documented on the internet that it can be watched in a very slow way and read about in a very slow way. Each time somebody trolled him, all of it is documented mm-hmm. on the internet. Absolutely everything that occurred in this process by which this autistic man was repeatedly exploited and taken advantage of. And the original reason that the trolls felt it was okay to do this to him Mm -hmm. is that uh, he 
expressed on the internet homophobic views. Right. And when he was trying to get a, a, a date, he had a sign that he carried around with him that said he didn't want any black women. So because he is considered a racist and a homophobe, right. people feel that they're justified in whatever it is they do to him and that if, uh, his autism or his uh, uh, disabilities, uh, that those don't excuse his behavior. And that uh, there are lots of people who have those disabilities who aren't homophobic and aren't racist, and therefore they're entitled to do anything they want to him. And some of the things they've done to him are just unspeakable, and I won't, I won't even go into it. Um, but I think there is a kind of gradual, a, a lot of the things that Chris Chan did on the internet were earlier versions of things that are now mainstream and popular. For instance, many people think that Chris Chan may have been the first to do a Let's Play, you know, where you make a video of yourself playing a video game. Oh, so right. that other people can watch it. Uh, he did this in the early 2000s with a game called Animal Crossing. Right. So many of the tropes of internet culture have been substantially invented by this guy. Was Animal Crossing the one that went viral during the lockdown? Uh, it it might have. It's an older game because it, it, it came out uh, back in, I think, 2000. Uh, it, if you haven't played Animal Crossing, I won't try to explain it. Uh, but it was very popular when I was a kid. Lots of people were playing it at that time. You made a little house and you lived in a little neighborhood with these little animal characters. And this uh, also you interacted goes, with them. This is my, my thesis, right? So Minecraft is very Hobbesian, isn't it? It's like you have to build a little hut, otherwise you get attacked by demons or something in the evening. Well, at least Animal Crossing, nobody attacked you. It was very... Neighborly that way. Oh, do you have neighbors in Animal Crossing? <laughs> you do. Okay. Little animals are your neighbors. And, and uh, <laughs> one of the things that people made fun of in, in the uh, Let's Play video where he is doing Animal Crossing is that every time he'd approach one of the neighbor's homes, the little animal would go into the home and shut the door as if they were trying to avoid him. Oh, man. It's a terribly so sad, sad story. It really is. Uh, and... You know, people are still viewing, you know, now that he is in, in jail for incest, people think it's even more, you know, he's a bad person and it's all his fault. And it, people are very, very mean about the guy. Uh, and he's just a, a heavily disabled person who was given the keys to the Internet by overly enthusiastic parents who didn't understand what they were doing at the end of the 20th century when the Internet was a completely lawless place, totally... Uh, mm. you know, that most adults uh, did not understand at all. So all of this stuff happened to this person. And yet a lot of the things in his life that people make fun of are now totally mainstream and normal. If you look at how he was living, what he was doing, he was just a hikikomori. He was just a, you know, an adult mm -hmm. man who couldn't hold a job, living with his parents, uh, kind of retreating from reality by being obsessed with toys and nerd, uh, you know, nerd and dorky stuff and fandoms and so on. His claim to fame is the creation of Sonichu, which is a combination of Sonic the Hedgehog and Pikachu the Pokemon. Uh, he put these things together and then he made a series of comic strips about Sonichu and all of Sonichu's friends. What about uh, copyright people... issues? <laughs> well, yeah. It, like it's like fan uh, fiction sorry. stuff. Right? <laughs> he just kind of drew this stuff. It's not like he could really sell any of it. I know, because... but these companies go mental when people do that stuff. Like they sue nurse Disney sued nurseries for when people painted Disney characters on like a, really? you know. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, yeah, somehow he's he's gotten away with it with mm. that to this point. It's really not I think the point a here. Fair use or parody or something, <laughs> but uh, 
Yeah. People just accused him of being gay all the time, and then he would try to prove that he wasn't gay, and, and oh, then this leaked into all see, sorts this, of terrible. If he'd had a mixed friendship group, this wouldn't have happened. You know, because there would have yeah. been gen- gentle mockery, which is what everybody needs, because precisely as Helen says, this thing about um, knowing that the other exists, like one, you know, overcoming solipsism and narcissism, which is all the time encouraged by our culture, but also by a particular psychoanalytic mode. It's a potential at any time, I think, right, to imagine that the other doesn't exist somehow. But but the, the gentle mockery of the bound other, you know, contingently bound, but tied to you and you are tied to them. That form of, like, you see it in the film, Peter's Friends, but sometimes it gets out of control, right? Like when people are drunk or they're very angry, they say really unpleasant things, but then they kind of walk it back. And, and it's it's within the context of the fact that that network exists, pre-exists, or that friendship group exists and can never be broken. So, I mean, if these poor individuals who are so isolated, they're not they're not having any love, but love in also in the sense of mockery, you know, and, and humour. And, you know, so no one's saying, Chris, don't you think you're spending too much time online or why don't you come well, for a Well, all walk? of the trolls are saying that. But the trolls are not but nice But they're not people. his friends. <laughs> right. That's it's, the problem. Yeah, that's awful. It's terrible. It's really, really terrible. I mean, I'm very glad that I um, didn't... Sorry, I'm, I'm in this situation where this la- I had to borrow my dad's laptop because my computer wasn't working. And now the charger, now the charger's not hit. And I now I'm in the wrong spot and somebody's got to come in here in a state of undress so maybe we should end this episode and start a new one well we are about to hit an hour anyway it's perfectly fine to wrap it up here so we're going to go and do the b-side thank you guys so much for listening and we hope you have a wonderful rest of the day bye bye bye